When you think of the story of Noah, you probably think of a lot of different ideas. Probably think of the, uh, the picture of the ark where the um, animals, the giraffe and all the tall animals are sticking their heads out the top of it. We'll see in, as we come through the passage that that's not really an accurate picture. You might think of the idea of Noah as being sort of the last man standing, the only one who's following God, the one who's faithful to the end. But we see from chapter 9 that Noah has his flaws as well. You might, in your mind, turn to scientific questions like how in the world could the flood cover the tops of the mountains and all of these sorts of things. And while those things are not unimportant, they are not, I think, the main point of the text. As we look through these three chapters, and don't worry, I'm not planning for it to take three hours, but as we go through these three chapters, we see God being faithful despite man's sinfulness. God makes various promises in these chapters. God said in the first part of chapter 6 that we looked at last week, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And in the flood, God keeps that promise. It says in verse 8 of chapter 6, which we also looked at last week, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God promises to look after Noah, and God keeps that promise. God makes promises after the flood about what he will and won't do in judgment on mankind again, about what man should and should not do with regard to the food he eats, how he acts toward one another, all these sorts of things. And God persists in those things as well. God's faithfulness is also shown in the fact that he remembers Noah and his family in the midst of the flood, and there's this turning point in the account of the flood where the waters are rising and rising and rising, it says God remembers Noah and the waters start to recede. God is faithful in the promises that he has made, in the relationship that he has had with his people, all of these things, despite man's failures. When I say man's failures, man's sin, what do I see? Verse 5 of chapter 6, we looked at last week, the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What was the occasion, the cause, the reason for the flood? The reason for the flood was that people had become so thoroughly corrupted by wickedness that that's all that they focused on, that's all that they did, that's the words that they spoke, the thoughts that they thought, the way that they behaved toward one another was wicked. So God said, I am going to send the flood in judgment. But verse 9 contrasts what we see in the first part of chapter 6, what we saw back in chapter 4 with the sin of Cain and murdering his brother, what we saw in chapter 3 where Adam and Eve took of the fruit and disobeyed God and committed the first sin of humanity. In chapter 6 and verse 9 we see Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. This sort of phrase is used to this point in the Bible only in chapter 5 to describe Enoch. 
We see in chapter 5 and verse 22, Enoch walked with God 300 years after he had become the father of Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. Noah is said to have walked with God. This sort of description characterizes other people throughout the Old Testament. David is described as a man after God's own heart. And others as well. Various ones of the prophets and faithful kings who led the people of Israel. But in contrast to those whose every thought was evil continually, Noah would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Here is everyone else doing whatever they want to do. Here is Noah doing what God wants him to do. Sometimes people will turn this passage into an account of how to stay strong for God in the midst of an evil world. And while I think that is a valid application, I think it's not the main point of the passage, but it is something to consider. Noah was following God. Noah was doing things that seemed ridiculous. Noah was doing things that God told him and nobody else that he ought to do. How do you think the people around him would have responded? Probably not very well. Noah is building an ark. Verse 15 says it's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall, roughly. Cubit was about a foot and a half. That's a pretty big boat. Up to this point in the account of Scripture, all we have seen is a mist that rises up from the ground and waters the plants. We do not see a record or an account of rainfall. Noah's out there building a boat. Verse 11 repeats God's judgment, God's evaluation of the world. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. This is significant in that when Adam and Eve sin, God comes down and beholds them in their sin. God comes down and sees what Cain has done. God comes down and sees the wickedness of man on the earth. We see it repeated again in the account of Abraham and Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God comes down and sees the wickedness that it was great in the earth. Sometimes we want to make excuses for our sin. We want to say it's not sin. We want to say it's someone else's fault. We want to say... Yeah, maybe I messed up, but here's all the reasons why. God's assessment was clearly this. They were wicked. They were corrupt. And you can't argue with God's assessment. So God then speaks to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, because the earth is filled with violence, and I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Think about the original design or purpose for creation. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in the first chapters of Genesis, we have a picture of beauty and harmony and new life and enjoyment of all the blessings that God has given. But in this verse, verse 13, it says the earth is filled, not with all of those things we saw pictured in the first few chapters of Genesis, the earth is filled instead with violence. Not the legacy of the Garden of Eden, but the legacy of Cain, of murder, of hatred, 
of wrongdoing. We see the description of the ark, that it is a large structure, that it is designed to protect Noah and his family, two of all of the main kinds of animals, room for them to have food. Uh, people have raised a variety of questions about this. How could all of the known animals fit on the ark? Just to illustrate the point, it wasn't poodles and Doberman pinchers and chihuahuas and St. Bernard's and all that sort of thing. It was one kind of dog. Very well could have been small uh, um, examples of those animals. There's nothing that says it had to have been a full-grown pair of elephants. It could have been younger, smaller elephants, and that would have made a huge difference in the amount of food and in the care and all of those sorts of things. So there's a variety of factors that could have gone into the reality of this taking place. But sometimes we look at a passage like this and we look at it and we say, let's find reasons not to believe what it says rather than taking it at face value and saying, God said it so it must be true despite all of the objections that people have raised. Along those same lines of objections that have been raised, um, People have said, well, you know, how could any of the fish have survived? Or how could they have lived in there for the year that's described? All these other sorts of things. Again, do we take at face value what God has said and say whatever explanations we come up with are going to fit what the text is? Or do we come up with reasons to disbelieve the text to make it fit the speculations of people who often can't make up their minds about whether their theories are accurate or not from year to year. How many times, for example, and this is a silly example, how many times have we heard in the last 20 years that chocolate is alternately good and bad for you? Or should you or should you not eat butter? Or things like that. That's just one small area of science. I don't mean to mock Scientists in general, my point is to illustrate people are imperfect, their theories often don't bear out over the course of time, and so are we going to rest our hope and our trust in the theories that men have invented or in the clear statement of God? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. If you notice in verse 22, in keeping with the description of Noah as a righteous man who walks with God, verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Uh, one other note, verse 20, it says, Two of every kind will come to you. There was a, a supernatural influence that God directed the animals to gather at the ark. Noah didn't have to go throughout the whole earth and gather them to himself. So that would have eased the task as well. Chapter 7. The Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. We see a further explanation now that some animals, there were more than just the two, the pair. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female, also of the birds of the sky, by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made." Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. And so we see at the end of chapter 5, verse 32, Noah was 500 years old, became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter uh, 7 and verse 6, Noah was 600 years old, 
when the flood of water came upon the earth. Hundred years, building the ark, gathering the animal, preparing for the journey, walking with God in the meantime. So Noah obeys God. Notice the numbers that are laid out in this text. It's not that they have some sort of mystical significance so much as they give us kind of structure to the, the development of the story. There's this idea of seven, and then the flood will come. Forty of the nights and days of rain. 150, the waters continue to increase. 150, they decrease. Forty, waiting. Seven, sending out the bird. Another seven, waiting, and then a landing of the ark upon the mountain. And so that gives a kind of structure to the text, an escalation of the point where the entire earth is covered with floodwaters, and then a dissension down to where the ark once again rests on dry land. So watch for that as we go through the text. Noah does what God commands him to do with the gathering of the animals that are coming to him and the organizing of them. Verse 12, we see the rain falls 40 days and 40 nights. Noah and his family, it's sort of, uh, there was a description of it, and then there's a jumping back. They entered the ark. They entered it before the rain comes, verse 12. Verse 13 is a description of what takes place previously. And then it says, The Lord closed it, the door behind them. Verse 17, The flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water lifted up the ark so it rose above the earth. It prevailed. The ark floated on the surface of the water. It prevailed so the high mountains everywhere were covered. It prevailed another 15 cubits, another uh, 22 and a half feet, the mountains were covered. All flesh perished. All that was on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life, died. Verse 23, Thus he blotted out every living thing, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. I think God has the author here repeat this idea of destruction and almost extinction, if you will, for the sake of emphasizing the severity and the totality of God's judgment. Look at verses 21 through 23. Flesh perished. They died. He blotted them out. They were blotted from the earth. There's just this emphasis and repetition that says... God's judgment is carried out and all of those who were walking and thinking everything would be fine. Jesus talks about this in Matthew. He says, In the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, going about their business, and the floodwaters came and carried them all away. You say, what about the animals and the birds and so forth? They didn't do anything bad. Think about the story of Jonah. Think about other people who behaved wickedly. When King Ahab led the people of Israel into idolatry, who experienced famine for, and, and drought for years? It wasn't just Ahab. It was all the people in the land. Sin has consequences not only for those who are committing it, but has a spillover effect around us as well. And the judgment was seen to be total, was seen to be complete, was seen to be the fulfillment of God's word. God kept his word even in this negative and, to our minds, horrific sense in wiping out all kinds of creatures, including mankind. 
There's a chapter division in chapter 8 and verse 1. Obviously, the chapter divisions came along much later, but I think it's in the appropriate place because it highlights the contrast between this escalation of judgment, of destruction, but then the turning point, verse 8, chapter 8 and verse 1, but God remembered Noah, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. How tall was the water? How widespread was the flood? These are questions that people have gotten into arguments about. If we look at the text, the text says life was blotted out. And the typical objection is made. We know that there are mountains that are so many miles high today. And so calculating from the basis of mountains that are a certain height today, then that means that we would have had to have this volume of water. And we know there's not that much water in the entirety of the earth today. And so it's not possible for this flood to have taken place. There's a couple of problems with that assessment. The first one is we're looking and seeing what the text says, and we're saying that's not possible, so it must not be that way. There are many things that we come across in the Old Testament that are not possible simply by natural explanation. The parting of the Red Sea, the feeding of the crowds in the wilderness, all of these sorts of things are not possible simply by natural explanation. There has to be divine intervention to cause them to take place. And so, if it were necessary that God created a volume of water to flood the earth and then removed that volume of water to cause it to subside, we could say that that is a possibility because God certainly has the power to do so. He created the water in the first place. He put it where it was supposed to be in the first place. And so God certainly had the power to do that. But there may be simpler explanations. We assume that the world, the world now, the earth now, looks exactly like it did then. And there is perhaps evidence at looking at the structure of the earth today and over the course of history that continents have moved, that mountains have risen and fallen, and so forth. And so to say that everything is exactly the same today as it was then is to have a uniformitarian view, the idea everything is always the same as it always was. That is the false view that's presented in 2 Peter 3 that gives people a reason to say God is not going to do what he said he's going to do. 2 Peter 3, people say things continue as they always have done. God has forgotten his promise. Judgment will not come. We see here clear evidence that judgment did come, that God does keep his promises, and that things do not always continue as they always have. A catastrophic flood that wipes out the majority of life on earth is far out of the realm of normal daily experience, right? And so I think from Scripture itself, we have to allow for the reality of catastrophes. We have to allow for the reality of divine intervention. We have to allow for the reality of God's judgment carried out in ways that are difficult to comprehend and fully explain because we don't know all of the details. But what we do know is that it took place. And so again, just like with the question of could all of the animals fit on the ark and how could they have survived for a year and all of those sorts of questions, do we submit those questions to the authority of the text? And when God says, here's what happened, 
We recognize that what other explanation we come up with has to fit under the statement of what God has said. And so we see this escalation. Seven days of the flood will come, 40 days of rain, 150 days of the water prevailing. Now we see the dissension, chapter 8 and verse 3. The water receded steadily. At the end of 150 days, the water decreased. I skipped over verse 2. The fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. So there is an explosion of water from under the earth. There's a pouring down of water from above the earth, and together that creates the flood itself. God speaks, the water recedes. This certainly probably reminds us of other cases where God has control over nature and can restrain it and can bend it to his will. Verse 4, In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of forty days, Noah opened the wind of the ark which he had made. So the forty days of rain, now the forty days of waiting, at, at the end of which Noah sends out a bird. He sends out first a raven, and it flew here and there, and he sent out a dove. But the dove returned. He waited seven days. Verse 10, again sent it out, and the dove came back with a freshly picked olive leaf. Then he waited another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Verse 13, in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried out from the earth. So we have to say, what was, what 601st year? Would have been Noah's 601st year, right? So they're in the ark for a year, essentially. The water is dried up. Noah removes the covering of the ark. The surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th of the month, the earth was dry. The emphasis is, it was deluged, it was covered, it was flooded, and now it's dry. The judgment has taken place, and now it is over. The text does not highlight this, but I think it's profitable for us to pause a moment and think about what it was that Noah and his family encountered when they walked off of the ark. You ever seen the aftermath of a flood? Debris from buildings, dead things, downed trees. Everywhere they turned would have been a reminder of God's judgment, a warning. Not just visual, but also a smell, a sound, or the lack thereof. The only noise would have been coming from them and from the animals that were with them on the ark. Everything else was gone. God's judgment was severe, and God's judgment was serious, and God's judgment was catastrophic. And I think when we don't look at these pictures and reflect on these accounts, sometimes we have an incomplete picture of what God is like. Or like, yeah, sin is bad, but I'll overlook it. Like, you know, when I'm at my grandparents' house and I break something of theirs, and they'll just say, oh, it's okay. God doesn't take that attitude towards sin. God destroyed the majority of life on earth in judgment against sin. 
And so we ought to take it seriously as well. Chapter fifth, or 8, verse 15, Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark. So just as God had sent them into the ark, God now says, Go out of the ark. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. There is a repetition in these next few verses of the commands that God has given previously. God commanded the animals to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Now that's going to need to take place again because all of this life has been wiped out. So Noah went out. The animals went out. Verse 20, it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. We see perhaps a picture, a glimpse of this and what God does with Adam and Eve, but it's not laid out in detail like it would later be in the Law of Moses until this verse, this idea of offerings of clean animals to be acceptable in God's sight. People have disputed over the nature of the offering here. Was it a sin offering? Was it a thanksgiving offering? There was probably elements of both taking place here, both a thankfulness for God having spared them through the flood and a sense that we are sinful even as those who were destroyed and we need God's forgiveness as well. Verse 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Notice verse 21, when it says the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, we're talking about the smell of animals burning, which is not always a pleasant smell. The thing that was pleasing to the Lord was the fact of their repentance and their offering and their obedience more so than anything that would particularly appeal to us. The second thing to notice is God's promise not to curse the ground again on account of man. We should probably understand this is not to curse the ground further. The original curse of the ground is not removed. We still have thorns and thistles and hard work and pain in childbirth and fighting amongst our relationships and all those sorts of things. That remains, but God says, I'm not going to curse the ground further. And then this promise that the seasons will continue and God will not blot out life in the way that he had done. God then speaks in verse 1 of chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 3 is a revision of what he had said originally. Originally it was, All the plants are for your food. Now verse 3, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God he made man. There is this introduction of an idea that will be borne out in the book of Hebrews, which is that apart from the shedding of blood, there is not forgiveness of sin. And this sacrificial system that it continues from the time of Noah until the time of Christ this offering of animals as a sign of repentance and seeking God's forgiveness for the sins that have been committed, this continuation of death uh, in light of the curse of sin and the example of Cain and the characteristics of the people before the flood 
that didn't just go away simply because it's now just Noah and his family. Death is still a part of the world. There's this removal of life and all these other sorts of factors. And so, I don't want to ruin anybody's meal, but every time you eat a hamburger or a steak or a piece of chicken, it ought to be a reminder to you of God's judgment on sin and the alteration of what God had said from here are plants for food to now here is meat for food. Only remember the life that is connected with it that is snuffed out in the eating of it. But man is put in a separate category, verse 5 and 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, because in God's image he made man. Man is put in a different category. Cannibalism is wrong, murder is wrong, and so forth, because man is in a different category than animals. They are fair game, so to speak, for food. Mankind is not. His life is valuable. It should be upheld. But in the same way that there is a connection between the blood and the life, between this idea of the sacrifice, all these other factors we see going on here, God is reminding Noah of the cost of sin and the ongoing realities of life in a world that is still broken. God repeats His promises to him. If you remember back in chapter 6 from our scripture reading, verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. Now in chapter 9 and verse 8, God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, Now, behold, I do establish my covenant with you. Why was there a need for God to establish a covenant, make a promise, and so forth? Because they're the only ones who are alive after the flood, because he had already said that he was going to do it, because he's setting the stage for this further relationship that he will have with Noah and his descendants going forward. I make it with you, with your descendants after you, with every living creature, and so on. Flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 11. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of covenant between me and the earth. When I bring a cloud over the earth, the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When it is in the cloud, I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So when you see a rainbow, it doesn't have to do with unicorns. It doesn't have to do with views on marriage. It doesn't have to do with uh, little kid daycare kind of decorations. A rainbow is a sign, ironically not to us, a reminder to us, but even more so according to this text, a reminder to God of the promise that he has made. And so when you see a rainbow, don't think here is water refracted through droplet, here is light refracted through water droplets in the sky and reduce it to a merely mechanical sort of explanation. Don't look at it and say, wow, and move on. Look at it and be reminded of the truth of this passage. It is a reminder that God will not flood the earth in judgment again. And the irony of that is that if we persist in sin, and if we take as our symbol the very thing that is a reminder of God not carrying out judgment in one way, we put ourselves under God's judgment in another way. And so let's not do that either. 
the end of chapter 9 as we conclude looking at this long passage this morning. The sons of Noah who came out of the earth were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, so they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. God has just gotten done judging the world for sin, and we see in this account a further example of the reality that sin is still very much a part of the world. It was not wrong for Noah to plant a vineyard. It was not wrong, based on other accounts we see in the rest of the Old Testament, for him to have made wine from the grapes in that vineyard. It was wrong for him to get drunk, to disgrace himself by lying about naked, for his son to go and look and mockingly go tell his brothers about it and dishonor his father in that way. At the very least, some speculate there was something else additionally that took place that was a disgrace of his father, but I don't know that we can support that from the text. The very least, what happens is a reminder that sin is very much still alive in the world, that there is a choice to be made between those who mock sin and rejoice in sin, as um, Ham did, versus those who seek to cover sin in the way of seeking God's forgiveness for it and covering up the shame of it and all of those sorts of things, as we see Shem and Japheth doing. And so once again, we're reminded, God has just made these promises that He's going to keep to people and people continue to sin. And so we see again in this passage the faithfulness of God contrasted with the sinfulness of man. And that's borne out in the curse and the blessing that Noah gives to his sons. People have speculated as to why he curses Canaan and not Ham. And I think that the answer to that, in part, one of the good explanations would be that God had just blessed Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and so Noah could not undo what God had done, but he could say, your descendants, this is what's going to happen as a result of it. And so again, we see the ripple effect of sin. We see that judgment continues. We see the hopelessness apart from God's intervention. Think back to Genesis 3, verse 15. There is coming one who is going to be a descendant of the woman who will crush the serpent's head and bring victory and relief from sin. Noah's father Lamech says, here is one who's coming who's going to give us rest. And perhaps there's irony in the account here in that the author says, Noah has rest after his labor of the ground by becoming drunk, but it's not a rest 
that is honorable. It's a rest that's disgraceful. It's a rest that demonstrates sinfulness. And so here's Noah. He could be the one in some way. He could be a step toward the hope that we've been promised. And he fails. The promise hasn't failed. But all the people in the course leading up to Christ are going to fail and fall short and sin. Think of David himself. Adultery, murder, not being a good parent. Despite the fact that he's described as a man after God's own heart, one who wanted to please God, his life is still characterized by sin. Adam failed. Noah fails. David fails. Christ does not fail. And so in this passage, we ought to see it pointing the way to the coming of one who's going to be the deliverer, who doesn't fail the way all of these that we've seen here do. We ought to see the fact that God is going to keep those promises that he's been making, even when people aren't faithful. So when we come to the nation of Israel, and God says, here's all the things I'm going to do for you and here's what I want you to do, and they don't do it, if we read Genesis, we shouldn't be surprised that that's what happens, because that's what's been happening for generation after generation after generation. God keeps His Word. Human beings fail, but there is still hope in Christ. And that's not fully explained here, but as we look at the span of Scripture, we see that developed further. And so when you see a passage like this, grieve at the consequences of sin that have come before, that are in your own life, that will result from the sins that you and people around you will commit, and see that God takes sin seriously. Be reminded that God is able to preserve and to protect His people despite judgment being poured out on the entirety of the earth. That has significance both here and with regard to the judgment in the end times, and with regard to God's ability to preserve His people in the face of persecution, there's a number of applications of that truth. But if nothing else, look at this and see that those that we might expect to accomplish the promise that God had made and be a part of the process of delivering God's people from sin, they fail too. And the story needs to keep pushing forward, and we need the one to come who is actually going to break this pattern of, yes, following God in some ways and failing miserably in others, but one who will keep the law in every point, one who will obey his Father without question, one who will be able to pay for the sins of others because he himself never committed any. And that's what this keeps driving us toward. And so I hope that even though we're looking at a very early chapter of the history of mankind here, I hope that you see the significance and the importance of trusting in Jesus that the New Testament talks about. Because if you just look at this and you get hung up on how big the boat was and how the flood happened and all of these other sorts of things, and you, you miss the big point that God's faithful man's not, but his plan keeps moving forward, that you may not be trusting in Christ in the way that the Bible says you need to to have salvation. Jesus said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A few chapters from now, we're going to see people trying to reach God by building a tower to heaven. That's not the way to reach God. You can only come to God in the way that He has laid out. We see people that we think would live a good life. People try to live a good life and reach God that way. You can't live a good life and reach God because like Noah, every one of us sins. People do the right rituals. Noah offered a sacrifice. People prayed to God. Those things by themselves are not sufficient for us to reach God. We need Christ who did those things perfectly. We need Him in our place. We need the forgiveness that He offers. And so maybe you've already trusted in Christ and said He is the way and Noah failed, but Christ didn't fail and I'm trusting in Christ. What should a story like this spur you on to do? Hate your sin. Warn the people around you, even as Noah did while he was building the ark. Keep following God despite the fact that you will still sin. Repent of that sin and... Keep following God and rejoice in the fact that the story doesn't stop here. Let's pray. Lord, the story of Noah's Ark isn't just a mural to be painted on the wall of a nursery. It isn't just a myth that we try to explain away by saying how it looks like other myths of ancient peoples. It isn't something for us just to say, you know, no and the animals all made it off the boat and everything was wonderful. Because there were signs of death all around. There was sin still within their hearts. There were promises that you made that immediately people turned their back on and went their own way. There are glimpses of amazing power in your control of the water and the earth, your preservation of Noah and his family and all that were with them on the ark. And there are also moments of despair in seeing how sin continued to characterize people. Lord, help us not to be overwhelmed by that despair, but only to let it drive us to say, we need one who is not Noah, but one who is a descendant of Noah, and that is Christ. We need deliverance not from a flood of water, which you have promised not to send again, but from the destruction that comes upon all those who do not believe in Christ. We need deliverance from ourselves because our hearts are wicked, apart from your work. We are dead in our sins apart from your life, and we are without hope apart from Christ who has come. And so, Lord, we pray that a text like this would drive us to follow you more, to hate our sin, to warn others about the judgment that is coming, to be encouraged by your faithfulness in keeping your promises, to look for the day when all things will be made new and when true rest and comfort will come even as there was a glimpse of it in the life of Noah and then the light went out. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
going to come now to an opportunity to remember uh, the coming of Christ, his death, both in the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body for sin. This is an opportunity for those who are trusting in Christ, members of our church, or believing in Christ, and members of another church that would preach that Jesus is the only way, that we have a responsibility to turn from our sin and repentance and faith and trust in him. If that's the case for you, and you have done that, and you are part of a church that teaches those things, I would encourage you to participate in this this morning. If not, I would ask that you would pause and reflect on what things would keep you from sharing in this memorial of what Christ has done. So if I ask the men to come forward, in just a moment we will pray. Mike, can I ask you to pray for the bread? Gracious Heavenly Father, again we come to 